Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. And yet God breaks onto the scene in this simple and profound way. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Folks, I can't emphasize and encourage you enough. Do not, let me say again, do not be overcome by the darkness that is consuming our world today. Don't don't give up hope in regards to what God can and might very well do in the midst of it all. Don't lose sight of how God works, no matter how dark it might seem or even becomes. Never rule God out of the equation because it is never so dark that God cannot work. And it's often in the midst of darkness, often when the darkness has reached its seeming peak, that God steps in and begins moving in ways that we never anticipated. And keep in mind, sometimes God allows the darkness to reach its peak. (laughs) Did you hear what I just said? Sometimes God allows the darkness to reach its peak before he steps in so that he can, he, he, what he's offering will stand in stark contrast to the dark backdrop. You know, I'm reminded of, of, of jewelers and particular diamond merchants. One of the ways you measure the value of a diamond isn't just by holding it up to light. No, the way it's measured is they roll out a black velvet piece of cloth and they lay that diamond against that black cloth and then they look at it and examine it. Why? Because it stands out in such stark contrast. The light gets illuminated in contrast to the dark backdrop that exists. And that's how God works. And we can't forget that. Don't let the events of the day consume you. I know it's hard right now. I know that we look around and we see all sorts of things happening. I mean, everything from riots in our cities to political intrigue all the way around. And and of course, all the conspiracy stuff that's floating on top of it just doesn't make it any better. And you see all these things going on and you can get so absorbed by it. I believe personally, God's people are getting way more absorbed in these things than we really need to. And we're losing our focus of what God wants to do with us and through us, and maybe even shining his light in some ways. You know, it's interesting. I was somebody I, I picked up the other day that there's a, a, a an apparent, apparent, and I say this carefully, that there is, seems to be some kind of spiritual happening taking place on in California and like the beaches, and they're saying that it's very much reminiscent of the Jesus movement back in the 60s. You know, and not long ago I wrote about how the 60s and 68, when the Jesus movement really began to happen, was in the midst of a, of a situation very much like this. The Hong Kong flu was raging, okay? The Hong Kong flu was raging, and there was rioting in our cities, boy, history tends to repeat itself. Nothing new under the sun. And yet in the midst of that, God broke through and he reached a group of hippies on the beaches and they started coming to Christ and in faith. And and really today, you know, there's many of us who are in faith today because of that movement. It's true revival. Some suggest that what they're seeing out there may be. Uh, Court's out. 
you know, and I don't mean to be negative, but court's out. You know, there, there have been lots of things that have been touted as revivals that aren't revivals. I want to see a couple of things happen. I want to see the Word of God being taught. Because if the Word of God is missing in the equation, it's not going to be a true revival. And I believe it's in the book of Amos, if I've got my book right. I think it's Amos. talks about a famine in the land, and the famine is the Word of God. But there's a famine. We're experiencing, I believe, in our own nation, a famine, not just a spiritual famine, but a spiritual famine that exists because of the lack of teaching of God's Word, the lack of consistent teaching. We've given ourselves over to all of the emotional stuff, all of the thrilling stuff, but we've negated the Word of God. And that's why we see so many wacky things happening. There are going to be wacky things happening when the Word of God and, 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 and a revival and, and an awakening and things are not being grounded on the Word itself because the Word of God is what helps us discern. The Word of God is what changes hearts. You know, back in the 60s, when that happened, when the Jesus movement happened, it happened because guys were going down to the beach, guys like Chuck Smith were going down to the beach and opening up the Word of God and teaching it to the hippies, and the hippies were getting saved by the droves. And then they packed into the churches to hear more teaching of the Word of God. So I don't know if what's happening there is a true revival. And I don't embrace everything every time something exciting happens that seems to be. I wait. Time will tell. But with all my heart, I don't discount that God could do that. I don't doubt in the midst of all of this that God could absolutely, in the midst of the darkness that seems to be reaching its apex right now, that God could break through and do this. And, and to be honest with you, it's my prayer. It's my prayer. Just one more time, Lord. I've said that for a very long time. Just one more time before the rapture. One more time. Oh, yeah, that's something where I differentiate on a revival, too. I know that some of the modern view of revivals is that the revival that God's going to send is going to transform the world and make it ready for Jesus coming and, and the kingdom will be established on earth. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. That's the concoction of men, not of God. When I look at the Bible, and I just finished teaching, those of you who are with me here, teaching through the book of Revelation, we know that the world is not going to get better. The world will grow darker and darker and darker, and it's going to culminate in this period of time known as the Tribulation. And during the Tribulation, it will reach the darkest that the world has ever reached. It's death, destruction, supernatural events pummeling the earth. And yet even there, against that dark backdrop... The diamond of Christ's life, light is going to shine because he will step onto the scene at the end of that seven-year period and he will come back. He will return. He will break on. And so we even know there that that will happen. But, but look, I, I understand that any kind of revival that I talk about or awakening has to do with an awakening of souls and a revival of the church for the reaching of souls before the rapture occurs, before the tribulation begins. I have to tell you honestly, I... I'm so glad that I have the rapture to look forward to. I know some people believe we have to go through the tribulation. I am not of that venue, and not because I don't, I, I, I prefer not to be. It's because I believe the scriptures are very clear. I believe that God is going to rescue his church and remove her from this earth for a number of reasons, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, I, those of you that have been following me on Facebook, you know that this week has just been a terrible week for us at our house. We had a storm that descended in a matter of minutes, and in a matter of minutes took down three of our giant Douglas firs, flopped them right off, snapped them off halfway up. One of them just blew it right off at the base. On top of that, my basement 
flooded. On top of that, my air conditioning went, oh my goodness, you know, it went out. And then the worst of all, my internet went out. I think that was the worst of all of it because I couldn't get on my phone and Facebook and everything else. But I thought to myself, and I almost had to chuckle at the end of it, is I thought to myself, wow, if I thought that was tribulation, that's not even close. It's not even close. And I won't experience what the world will one day experience as a believer, nor will you as a believer. That we have to look forward to the light of Christ breaking onto the scene even before that happens to remove us from this earth. Praise the Lord for that. And yet at the same time, we're not there just yet. I don't know when that day will be. I'm not a predictor. I don't have a a, a magic spiritual globe to know exactly when the rapture would be. I don't have an idea. I can look at the events in our world and say, well, we're definitely in the latter days. And we're getting closer with each passing day and hour. But I don't know when. And in the meantime, we're here with a mission. We're here to, to share the good news of the gospel in the midst of this dark world. And my heartfelt prayer is that God would awaken souls that unbelievers would come to faith in Christ before the tribulation happens, so they, like us, can be removed from this earth before that would even begin, assuming we are that generation. My heart is to see just one more time, Lord, that you would do that. But sometimes the darkness has to precede that. Sometimes our world has to get to the place where men and women just lose hope in the world and begin to look for the only hope that they can have so that when Jesus appears with that hope, whether it be through the preaching of his word that reaches them in a powerful way, that there's something being offered that stands in contrast to this dark world. Will he do it again? I don't know. But I always have hope, as should you. Because just like we're looking at here, things were dark. Things couldn't have gotten much darker. And yet all of a sudden, God very quietly begins to speak into the life of a servant. And from this, one of the greatest revivals within the nation will take place as as hearts are being prepared for the arrival of their long-awaited but soon-coming Messiah. Maybe God will do the same in our world today. Just one more time. Well, look on at verse 3. He goes on, and, and, and he went into all the regions around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God." Luke Luke doesn't go into the details about John that many of the other Gospels do. But based on the other accounts, we know that John had been living in the desert up to this point. And, And a number suggest, you know, for good reasons, that he was part of the Essene community in the Dead Sea region of Israel. Now, the Essenes were a Jewish mystical sect somewhat resembling the Pharisees, but far more pure than the Pharisees ever were. And, and far more austere in the way that they lived their lives with extreme ritual purity and separation. They originated around 100 BC and they disappeared from history after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And interest in the Essenes, most people didn't even think about them until recent history, but the interest in them got renewed with the discovery of what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were likely recorded and stored in caves that these these folks inhabited. In fact, if you go with us to Israel next year, 
This will likely be one of our stops as we go down to the Dead Sea region. You can see where one of their communities were. And you'll see the actual caves where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a young shepherd boy that was throwing rocks. I think it was back in the 50s, I think it was. He was throwing rocks into a cave and he heard something break. And so they went in and looked and lo and behold, here are these perfectly preserved parchments that have been stored in these jars that validate many of the books of Scripture that we have today. And yet they could be dated back to the Essenes. The Essenes had put them into these jars to be stored and kept. And so this was the Essene community, and and people have gotten interest in them in the years with the, the rising of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And while we can't be dogmatic about John's association with the Essenes, they would have existed at the time. And there are some things noted in the scriptures about John that do align with the characteristics of the Essenes. First of all, John made the desert his home, and so did the Essenes. Both John and the Essenes lived an austere life, willingly foregoing the the pleasures of this life in order to pursue spiritual things. John used Isaiah 40 and verse 3 to describe his role, just as he says here in this passage, as the voice in the wilderness. That's right out of Isaiah 40 and verse 3. The Essenes were also historically known to apply that exact same verse to themselves and to their calling as well, as the voice in the wilderness. And both John and the Essenes practiced baptism or ritual washing. And both connected it to more than outward purification, which was the norm of the day. All of these things were always about the outward purification, the removal of sin outwardly, done by a man what he does, which is just acknowledged by God after he does it. But but John and the Essenes both practiced it in a way that had to do with an inward change of heart, focusing on the change of heart that would go with it. And so there are a lot more things that, that, that seem to align John with this community, but the fact is we simply don't know. But we do know that both John and the Essenes lived their lives in very similar ways. Besides the possible connection to the Essenes, we also know that John looked, acted, and lived like the prophet Elijah. This connection was a, was a prophetically connected one, as Jesus himself pointed out in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. And Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, that John was the present time fulfillment of the prophecies contained in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which states that Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah. Here's what it says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. John did come in the spirit of Elijah, preceding Christ's coming. And he came preaching the message and doing the very things that the prophet Isaiah also said that he would, just as Luke makes reference to here in these verses. In fact, the quote that's used here in our passage in Luke is taken directly out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so it is that based on God's word and calling, John emerges and he fulfills this role as the forerunner of Messiah, just as Malachi prophesied, just as Isaiah prophesied, coming in the spirit of Elijah, just as Jesus said, as he pointed to John. But John now emerges from his seclusion and he begins his public ministry of preparing the way for the long-awaited but soon-coming Messiah making his path straight in the hearts of men and women of Israel. And as we read these verses, we get the clear and intentional sense from Luke that a major turning point is taking place in the history of God's people and in the story of redemption that's taking place in this moment. As Barclay notes in his commentary to Luke, the emergence of John the Baptist was one of the hinges on which history has turned. You know, I think there are many hinges as we look back through history, upon which history, God's history, his story, I always like to relate to that as some do with history as his story, because all of mankind's history is about God's story of redemption working itself out. But there have been many hinges that have turned. And I believe looking at World War II is even one of the hinges, because World War II was the impetus for the Jews going back to the land of Israel, just as the Bible predicts that they will and would. And they have. They're going back, even now today. But World War II was the impetus for that. There are many hinges throughout history, but this is one of them. And here, as the message, as John comes forth, he begins preaching his message. And his message is a simple one. Very clear, very simple. It's a baptism of repentance. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, what's baptism? Well, baptism was not a new concept to the Jews. Not by any means. Uh, the Essenes, who I mentioned a few moments ago, they practice a baptism ritual that led to initiation into their community. And it was also administered to the non-Jews that were converting to Judaism. If you wanted to convert to Judaism, you went through a ceremonial washing or a baptism that took place. And it was also part of the cleansing rituals within Judaism itself. But what was different, what was different and is what John is doing here that's different was the combination of baptism with John's message about repentance and what that implied. This was a baptism of repentance that was meant to identify people with their sin, to get them to recognize and to identify themselves with their sin, but then to get them to recognize their need to get right with God through the cleansing which God himself alone could bring to their lives. Different than ritual cleansing, which they'd practiced up to this point, is that it pointed them to their need for a Savior to cleanse them. As several commentators describe it, John was calling the Jews, the very sons and daughters of Abraham, to acknowledge that they were sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, another commentator said John's baptism was associated with repentance. That is, it outwardly pictured an inward change of heart. You see, up to this point, the, the Jews knew about their sin. That, that's not the issue. They knew about their sin, but they looked to the keeping of the law for their cleansing from it. 
They look to a ritual-based cleansing based on self-effort, which, which God only ratified after they did it. They didn't look to Him for it. They looked to the law, to the practice, to the things that they were doing to cleanse themselves from it, and not to a cleansing that would come from someone outside themselves. They didn't see their need for a cleansing for someone from someone outside themselves. But now John was focusing them on the real issue of sin, pointing to the fact that sin had to be dealt with by someone other than themselves, that the rituals couldn't do it, that the law couldn't do it. You know, I don't know, and we're not told all of the messages that John preached, exactly what he said to the people, but I am sure that included in this are very much some of the things that Jesus would later say, and the Apostle Paul in particular said in the writing of the New Testament Scriptures that that the law was meant to point us to the only one that could cleanse us from our sins. A recognition that the law could never remove our sins from us. It was just designed to make us aware of our sinfulness, to get us to the place where we would recognize that man would recognize that, that we had a sin condition that we couldn't resolve ourselves. And so John now comes focusing them on that cleansing for sin that could only come from God alone. And that made his message new, and it made it unique to the Jews. But it, what, what was meant to get them to look forward to and to prepare them for what Jesus, the Messiah, was coming to do for them. Do you realize that even though we, too, recognize our need for cleansing from sin that comes from God alone, at least I hope you do, that you recognize the fact that you're a sinful as a human being and that you need a cleansing from your sin that you can't resolve. You can't resolve that sin yourself. That you've looked to Jesus for that cleansing, and we look to that, but we no longer preach a baptism of repentance as John preached it. But we preach baptism in Christ and participation in a symbolic baptism of identification with Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, since Christ has come and he's finished the work of redemption on our behalf, we now preach that when we place our faith in Christ, we are baptized in him as his spirit takes up residence in us and cleanses us and he forms us into new creations. Just as Galatians 3.27 tells us, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let me say that again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You see, since Christ has come, he's finished that work of redemption on our behalf. We now preach that we look to what Christ has done for us. We trust in what he's done for us and, and that we're baptized in him as his spirit takes up residence in us and he cleanses us as he forms us into those new creations. But we also preach and practice a baptism of identification with Jesus in his death identification with him in his burial, identification with him in his resurrection, acknowledging publicly through the symbolic ritual of water baptism what Christ has done for us. As we go into the water, we're symbolically depicting how we, by our identification with him, by faith, have died and gone into the grave with him. And as we rise from the water, we're symbolically depicting how we, by our identification with him, by faith, have been resurrected to new life. Our sins being completely washed away and buried with him forever. And through the baptisms we preach and engage in, we no longer prepare ourselves for the coming of Messiah and what he promises to do for us. But we engage in it by looking back by faith to how fully Jesus fulfilled these things for us through his work on the cross and we identify ourselves with him, you see. 
for us, baptism is exactly about what Paul describes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a passage I read whenever we hold baptisms here at the church. It's our identification with Christ. It's, it's in that public identification. We're declaring to people that we understand what has spiritually happened with us. Because of the provision that Christ has made in our faith in him, we've gone into the grave with him, our sins being buried with him, and we rise to new life in the new person, new creation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.